A lot can happen in 400 years. Wouldn't you guys say? I mean, I think a lot can happen. Think about it. 400 years ago, this nation didn't exist. As a matter of fact, 400 years ago, this nation would not have existed for another 150 years. So we're not talking like it's just barely not there. A lot happens in the course of 400 years. And so let's take a look real quick in Exodus chapter 1. Verses 6 and 7, as it kind of talks about some of the things that did happen. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. As a matter of fact, at the time of the Exodus, the estimates are that it's between 1.5 million and 2.5 million Israelites would leave Egypt. That seems kind of implausible, doesn't it? To a certain extent it does, because we have 75 that are down there. The 70 that went down, of course, Joseph and his family were there. And so we have 75 that are down in Egypt at that time. 400 years later, we have 2.5 possibly million people who are going to be leaving Egypt. So I got to thinking about this. What if the Bannister clan were one of the clans of Israel? I know it's already scary thinking about that, right? And it started with me and Shannon. And we start with the family that we have, because our family is growing. You know, just became a grandfather this past year, having a blast with my grandson, have no problem saying that. About to have our family grow again as we have a marriage taking place in less than two months right now. There's a very real possibility that within a year or two, we might have all of our kids married off, you know, and to awesome people. Right? And then building their family. And so with the Bannister clan, we create this rule that, that, that our custom is that our clan marries and has three children. That's our, that's our rule. Okay? So everybody in our clan marries somebody and has three children. That's, that's the way that that's going to work in the Bannister clan. Okay? So Shannon and I, you know, we start with the Bannister clan, we start with two. We have three kids. They marry three, so that's six, right? So that's three times that amount. Their kids have three kids, and they marry. So that's 18. So three generations down. So everyone is tripling, okay? So tripling that. So I was thinking, how long would it take for us to have a million people in the Bannister clan? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to see, right? A million people in the Bannister clan. Some of you are going to have nightmares about that. It would take only 13 generations before we would have 1,062,882 within the Bannister clan. And the takeover of the world begins. Now, Most of the childbearing years happen between, for most people, between the years of 25 and 35 years old. Some happen later than that, some happen earlier than that, but that's pretty much an average there. So if we took 13 generations based on a 25 to 35 year generation before you're having those kids, that would amount to 325 to 455 years. In other words, approximately 400 years. 
Isn't that amazing? That just starting with me and Shannon, if it were just three kids in a marriage, in every, if you average that in every one of the marriages there, for 13 generations, there'd be a million people there. And the people of Israel started with 75. The idea of 2.5 million is plausible. Not only plausible, it makes sense. And this is important because when we're looking at the Word of God, we need to be looking to say, does this make sense? Is this factually accurate? Can we, can we say that something like this really could happen? And it can. Because those numbers, for me and Shannon, talking about that, are not unrealistic numbers. We didn't talk about having 17 or 18 kids. And back in the time of the Bible, they were having a lot more kids than we do today. Now they had a larger mortality rate as well. But would it be plausible to think that the Israelite families averaged three kids? I think it would. I do. And if they did, then the idea of 2.5 million Israelites leaving Egypt because they've been there for 400 years makes sense. The idea that they greatly multiplied during that time makes sense. And that's important for me and you because we want to look at the Bible first and foremost as a document of history, that this is God's history preserved for me and you that we might know about his faithfulness, right? So, there are things that happen from the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, and later in the book of Hebrews that we're going to be looking at today. Because there's a difference between a family and a nation. See, the people of Israel at the time that Jacob and his descendants went down were a family. Extended family, but a family. Now they've become a nation. And things change when you become a nation. Things change as far as the dynamic is concerned. Some of those changes we see reflected even with us today. We'll talk about those connections between us and the nation of Israel and the things that we're going to be talking about, the changes they go through that we still experience today, even as believers in Christ. And there are differences as well. So what's the first thing? Well, the first change that I think is huge during this time is this idea that they went from personal worship to community and corporate worship. They went from personal worship to community and corporate worship. I want you to think, because we're going to go to some of the phrases that were given to Pharaoh at the very beginning. You know, we go to Exodus, or you're listening to the Prince of Egypt. How many of you watched the Prince of Egypt, showed it to your kids? You're like, that's awesome. And it's like, let my people go, right? Let my people go and do what? We don't get that second half in these movies, by the way. The let my people go is like, oh, they're, they're just let my people go and we're going to leave. That's actually not how it's phrased to Pharaoh throughout this conversation as this setup between Pharaoh, the showdown between the gods of Pharaoh and the gods of, and the God of Israel is revealed. After God reveals himself to both Moses and to Aaron, we see in chapter 5 of Exodus these words, 
chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the uh, the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. Let my people go so they may worship me. That's that was the let my people go. We, we, don't, we don't get that, right? We kind of, kind of said, let my people go, and it's all of Israel just leaving. Now, Pharaoh definitely takes it that way. But that's not how it's presented. It's presented, let my people go that they may worship me. But he's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you come and worship me. And so there's this showdown between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. And then another instructive passage that's really interesting to look at in Exodus chapter 10. A number of the plagues have taken place. And this is after the plague of darkness that takes place. But we see every single time, you get Pharaoh kind of a little bit more relenting every single time, but he still hardens that heart, right? Verse 24, it says, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord, even your women and children may go with you, only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. What an odd statement. Until we get there, we're not going to know what we need in order to worship the Lord. And here's the thing. Moses isn't lying. Because up until this point, we can go all the way back and look through Genesis. Every part of worship has been personal. Abraham makes a covenant with God and God blesses Abraham or God delivers Jacob. God brings him back into the land. What do they do? They build an altar and offer a sacrifice. We look all the way back to Cain and Abel. We see what caused division among them that would lead to Abel's death was the fact that they'd offered a sacrifice unto the Lord personally. There's no prescribed thing for them to do. They're holding on to a tradition that we're honoring the God who has revealed himself to us. Noah comes out of the ark and he offers an, a sacrifice to God. But there's nothing as far as a prescription that's written down for us to see of what they're supposed to do. And so they've been going this whole time on this personal relationship with the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob and the promises therein. And whenever God has shown up or blessed them, they have responded by offering and building an altar and giving sacrifices. That's what we see throughout the Scripture. But there's no prescription for it. It's just something we've seen them do as a place of honor. Now God has revealed himself to Moses. 
and says, go out to, to do this, and you're having this clash with Pharaoh, but you're going to go out here and have a three-day festival with me. And Moses says, but we don't even know what we're supposed to offer because the law hasn't been given yet. He hasn't gone up and, and been in the presence of God to receive the Ten Commandments and the further instruction. It's just odd for us because when we read that, we don't think about that. They didn't know. And that's the difference between a personal worship and a corporate worship that they're moving to. God is moving them into a corporate type of worship. So Exodus chapter 19, there's a reason for that. So if we go to Exodus chapter 19, this is after he has delivered the people of Israel. And they're at the mountain of God. And we see in verse 3, it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the house of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. See, the purpose that God brings them out is not just to fulfill the promise that he had given to Abraham because he said, your, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. They're going to be mistreated by a nation that's not their own, but I'm going to bring them back out of that land. This is the promise that God has given, but the reason for it is that he might have these people as his own treasured possession, as a nation of priests, as a kingdom of priests. What's a priest supposed to do? A priest is supposed to draw people to God. That's what a priest is supposed to do. Whether we're looking in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system, why were the sacrifices given? So that that the person offering those sacrifices are what? Drawn close to God. And here's a whole kingdom of priests. The whole nation of Israel, whether they were of the priestly line or not, were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they stood as a testimony to everybody around of what it meant to get drawn close to God. They were going to be different than the nations around them. And they were going to do it together as a nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, not a household of them, not a family of them, a kingdom of priests, a nation. And a nation is dealt with differently than a family. It just is. It just is. So the end of Exodus focuses on the tabernacle. And then Leviticus focuses on the priestly duties what the Levites are supposed to do, the, the sin offerings that are supposed to be given, all, all the sacrificial offerings that the priests are to give to the people, and the people are supposed to respond with those things. Why? So that they may draw near to God. 
and the high priest and the role that he is supposed to play among his people as a spiritual leader of the people of Israel. This is what we're looking at as we're looking at what God is setting up. So they move from personal worship to community and corporate worship. Much different. They're learning what it's going to be. They, they're no longer going to just build altars at home anymore and sacrifice whatever they want. They're going to be prescribed by God concerning what it is that they need to do when they've sinned, when they're happy, what, what, what goes on, how do I properly respond, and it's equal to everybody who's part of this nation, of this kingdom of priests. But it's not the only thing that changes. The second thing that changes is this idea of personal justice to national justice based upon God's law. If you'll remember back in Genesis, we see Abraham. Remember Abraham had to go and rescue Lot because he was kidnapped? And he went and and he defeated these other kings? There was no real law telling him to do that, right? He just kind of went out. It's like, lots out, I'm out. We're going. <laughs> Gung-ho, right now. <laughs> 319 men, head out. Let's go. Or 317. It's 300-something. It's 13-something. I don't know. But he took all the men of his household and went and rescued Lot and these other kings that were there. Not just that. We remember, remember what happened to Dinah, Jacob's daughter. She was raped. And what happened? Simeon and Levi took it upon themselves to concoct a plan and kill all the men of the city for which this terrible thing took place. And the only, the only um, if you will, reprimand that they received was from Jacob saying, man, if people hear about this, they're going to come in and attack us. You don't hear anything about jail time. You did this wrong thing. You, you get a, we have a personal justice that is taking place during the time of the patriarchs. There's not a national justice. You might have some, some form of some sort of justice in maybe some of these city-states, but among the patriarchs, they kind of made up their own justice as they went along. And now something was going to change. After the deliverance from Egypt, God gives the Ten Commandments. And the other commandments that are based upon those Ten Commandments foundation. 613 laws. Which, ironically, Steve has given me a, a copy of all of that rolled out. If I were to take it, I could roll it and probably reach Sean back there with all the, with all the laws that are printed out on it. But three, 613 laws based upon the Ten Commandments that the people of Israel were now to keep as a society together. This is how we're going to practice justice among the people of Israel. So when somebody does something wrong, this is how we're going to deal with it. Now, many people who quote the Old Testament concerning the prescriptions that are found here in the Bible... You know, we'll try and use that to impugn the character of God. Well, if God is perfect, why does he, why does he allow slavery? Or why, why was this his prescription for rape, right? We, we wonder sometimes out loud, and they try to use that to, to knock God down. But here's the problem with that type of thinking. When they do that, they misunderstand the purpose of the law. See, the law is in effect because of sin, 
That's the whole reason the law comes into effect, to make people aware of sin and because sin exists, right? In other words, the law lets us know when the people of Israel had sinned and how to bring justice and restoration to the society as a result of that. Even in its application, it doesn't describe a perfect situation. We're not talking about a perfect God. We're, talking about, we're not talking about a perfect situation because there's already sin involved. Rather, the law is good because it both recognized what sin was and had the proper punishment for the peace, safety, and restoration of society. Remember, the people of Israel had agreed ahead of time. We've already read those passages of Scripture. Whatever you say, God, we will follow you. So they've already said, God, you get to set the rules. So us complaining about what rules God has set is really kind of a moot point because the people of Israel said, no, we agree, that's fair. You brought us out of slavery. This is good. So the very fact that we are having problems in our 20th century, 21st century mindset, right, is kind of irrelevant, don't you think? If I made a deal with you and I shook hands with you and I said, this is what we're going to do, it really doesn't matter what somebody else says if we thought it was fair when we made that arrangement. You guys agree? And yet that's exactly what we do when we talk about God and the people of Israel. Like, oh, God is evil because of this. Really? Well, the people of Israel didn't think so. And on top of it, we misunderstand what happens as a result of that. So while... This happens, and we have the proper punishment for it, for peace and safety and restoration of society. It couldn't take away sin, but what it could do is it would dampen its effects by providing an equal justice when sin had taken place. If I know that the punishment for whatever it is, for stealing, was this, and it's the same for Sam as it is for Madeline, I don't know why I'm picking on the worship leaders today. Um, but if it's the same for Sam and Madeline, then we have, we have peace, that justice has been done. But if it's different for any reason, then, then there's not justice. And that's the one thing that we see with God, that he wants that same justice for everybody there. As a matter of fact, this type of law was needed for a group of people that had grown from 75. If it's family, even if it's a large extended family, we can kind of handle the family, right? Don't hit your brother as you smack him upside the head, right? But then you know that if his brother went to come and hit him, you do the don't hit your brother. He's going to get the same thing, right? It's easy to do when it's 75 people. But when you get two and a half million people together, and you're trying to have a just society, it's a little bit different, isn't it? It's a little bit harder to regulate and know that everybody is being treated the same. And so the law has been given. But God is very clear that he wants the law to be equally given to all people. Let's take a look at a couple places in Scripture where he does this in our sections that we're looking at. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15 says this, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. That's, that's pretty important, don't you guys think? And it's interesting. He takes both extremes of society, the poor and the rich. Why? Because we are more likely to let the poor off the hook because they're poor. 
So we'll let them get away with this or that or something else. And God says, no, you treat them the same. And the great, we do the same thing. As a matter of fact, I would say that we probably live in a country right now where if I asked you, do you think those who are politicians in Washington play by the same rules that you and I do? Most of us are going to say, no. Right? We're already seeing how partiality ruins a just society. And when it's not equal, the people suffer and the people groan. Exodus chapter 23, verses 2 and 3 say these things. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. And when you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Skipping down to verse 6, it says, Do not deny justice to your poor, to poor pe- to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will not acquit the guilty. So what is God trying to say as he's establishing the law? He wants the law equal for everybody. This isn't established for some and not others. It's for everybody. And so we don't want false witnesses. And we don't want corruption at the level of where justice should take place. And then we get the hint. We're shown right there in the midst of that verse 7 where he says, I will not acquit the guilty that even if justice isn't done here, God's justice will someday be given to all. So even if justice is perverted and the people sin by by accepting bribes, people sin by favoritism uh, of the poor or favoritism of the great, or they do the false witnesses, in the end they're not getting away from it because God does not acquit the guilty. They may think they get away with it. And this is why hell is just. This is why the punishment that goes outside of what Israel is talking about here is just. Because God's judgment is just for everybody. In the end, nobody gets away with anything. And think about this for a moment. The law isn't put into effect to show God's perfection. But rather man's imperfection. See, perfection would be not murdering people. Perfection would be not committing adultery, right? The very fact that we have to have a law in place that says if adultery happens, this is how you deal with it. We're already dealing with imperfection. Are we dealing with God's imperfection? No. We're dealing with our imperfection. And the law is placed so that we might have justice being done throughout the society in a manner that's equal for everybody. But perfection would be not to steal or lie or covet. Wouldn't that be a great place to be? Sounds a little like heaven, right? Actually, it sounds a lot like heaven. Because those things won't be there. And that's where we're going to see that 
perfect society actualized. But this is what God wanted, that that in the midst of this, we're going to deal with the breaking of the law in an equivalent manner among our people so that we shine as an example to the world around us. Remember, the whole goal of having a just society is so what? That they would be a nation, a kingdom of priests and point people back to God. That's the whole reason for it. That's why they wanted to do justice the way that God told them to do. You see, the whole idea that there wouldn't be punishment for sin would actually make God a very evil God. We're, we're experiencing a little bit of that right now in, in the nation that we're living in because we're seeing what's happening as favoritism is given to those who are poor, those who are in bad circumstances. And so we're seeing a lot of injustice happening by the, those who are supposed to uphold justice, by saying, because I see that they're in such a bad situation, I feel so bad for them, I'm going to go ahead and let them out, though they have robbed, though they have lied, though they have stolen, though they have killed. We have seen all of those things happening right now in our society, and none of us are happy about it. It enrages us. Why? Because favoritism is being shown on behalf of people And their circumstances, not according to the law. And God would say that those judges who have done such things, even with their own intentions in mind, are not good judges. They're evil judges. Because they have not displayed justice. They have showed favoritism. And as a result, the people groan. Like I said, this is why hell is just. A God that would not punish sin and just said, everybody come to heaven, that's awesome. Doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter how you lived. Doesn't matter if you were somebody who was honoring me with all of their life or somebody who disregarded me with all of their life. Everybody's welcome in. Would that place even be close to heaven? That's why hell is just. It's why God gives the warning that he will not hold those guiltless who do not uphold his law. So, we move from personal worship to community worship. We move from personal justice to a justice that is founded in God's law. This is, these are huge changes for the people of Israel. Because up until this point, the only law they've had to follow are the Egyptian laws. Right? They're, they're in slavery. They're coming out on their own to be a people on their own. They've never had to do this before. Having to understand what it means to be in community with one another. And that's where we go to Numbers. Numbers is the working out of this. This has now been established. Now we see them walking this out. Both good and bad. These first 40 years where they end up wandering around in the desert. And why do they wander around in the desert? Because of disobedience. We see the enforcement of the covenant of God's people. That says, I'm not showing favoritism toward you. You sin toward me. I'm treating you just like I treat everybody else. But my sin, by, by this punishment, I'm here to make you into this kingdom of priests that everybody's going to see. This is the righteous, holy, and true God. 
And so when we see, we see disobedience happen, we see God punishing his people, sometimes super harshly, right? At least from our perspective. But we also see blessing that when they're obedient to God, when they've turned, they repent, we see that God is faithful to uphold his covenant, a blessing, to hold up, uphold his covenant in the defense of his people, in the conquest of lands, in the, in the promises that have their origin in God. This is what we're looking at when we look at Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. So Numbers is a lot about accountability. This is what we begin to see working out as accountability. In Exodus, we see deliverance. In Leviticus, we see the priestly duties. In Numbers, we see accountability. This is what happens. We're starting to walk this relationship with God and see what happens as a result of it. And accountability happens. And when bad things happen and the people repent and they turn back to God again, we see the blessing of God overtake the people of Israel. Lots going on. So how does Hebrews fit in with all of this, right? So we've talked about Exodus, we've talked about Leviticus, we've talked about Numbers. Now let's talk about Hebrews. Hebrews helps us make sense of the covenant promises of God to Israel because they're ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we too, we see this sacrifice for sin, so we see ultimate justice done through Christ. Where the law could not take care of sin, Jesus has. So we have a better covenant. But we have something similar. Because when we come to Christ, we could come individually. As a matter of fact, there is a lot of people who, there are, there is a lot of people, there are a lot of people. All my grammar Nazis out there. There are a lot of people who say, I can do religion better on my own than I can in, in, in the community, right? I don't believe in organized religion. We see this mantra a lot, don't we? But the problem is we don't have license in the word of God to do that. We undercut what God has designed for the community because one of the things we're supposed to be and how we show off our um, righteousness to the world and whose we are is through our community with one another. Not my words, Jesus' words. Want me to prove it? Okay. Um, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Jesus is in the upper room. I love these verses of scripture. Jesus is in the upper room. Judas is already gone. And he says these words, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Every one another passage in the New Testament is believer to believer interaction. Jesus is in the upper room talking to his disciples. Talking to his disciples who are faithful. And he says this, if you love one another, all men will know you're my disciples. That sounds a little bit like what God was setting up with the people of Israel, wasn't it? If you follow me and obey my commands, I will make you a priestly nation. Everybody is going to come and know that I am the God of gods, and they'll know that because of you. 
And where we're no longer a priestly nation, the Christian, there's not a Christian nation on earth. We are a Christian people, and we've been given that same charge. And that charge happens, and other people see it with us loving one another. This is where I could really easily get in on my soapbox, right? Because the problem I see is that we have now become a nation and a people who have become convinced that this time together in community isn't important. In general, most people don't meet every week. In general, most people who call themselves Christians, maybe three out of four weeks, if they're really faithful. Maybe two out of four. But Jesus told us that all people will know that we're his disciples as if we love one another. How can we love one another if we're not getting around one another? How can we truly say we're loving one another when a lot of times those who profess the name of Christ can say, well, Jesus, I love you, but I hate your church. How are people going to know that you're Christ's? Don't want to get around God's people. Don't want to be held accountable. See, all of the things that the people of Israel were about to get used to are things that we, once we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are called to be in community together because this place here is a training ground for reaching out to the world to know Jesus, to be equipped for our works of service. Why? So that we'll become mature. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. That's what we're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says the same thing. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day, talking about the day of judgment, approaching. See, it's the same thing. We want, we want to act right as Christians, right? We want justice done here. So how do we learn how to do that? In accountability, in community together. The same as the people of Israel. The exact same. The difference is we have somebody who takes care of our sin. Jesus who is taking care of our sin. Who is the fulfillment of the promises of the people of Israel. And the sacrificial system that they have in place. That we're going to be learning about together. That's fulfilled through Christ. We have that. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. But we're still called into community. To encourage one another. To spur one another on to love and good deeds. To encourage one another as we see the day of judgment approaching. So that we can tell the world about Jesus. And if we deny ourselves this, how are people going to know we're his? How do we become a people of God when we can't stand being around the people of God? It's a real big ironic statement, isn't it? And it's something that we really need to get over because in the same way God has rescued you and me, he's brought the deliverer in the same way that he delivered the people of Israel. 
He's brought ultimate justice on the cross, placing our sins upon Jesus. And he's called us, in the same as Israel, into community that we might go out and make disciples of all nations. That's our calling. It sounds very similar to what he was calling the people of Israel to. I'm going to make you a nation of priests so that everybody else around you will see that God is real and this is him and here's how you can follow him. But that happens when they see something different in us on how we act to one another. Man, we need to get around one another more. We do. We need to hang around each other more. The small groups that we have in the church, they should be a lifeline for you, getting around people so that you get to know them and then get in your lives and pray with you so that you can say, I love being in this place. I love my life group. We've been not meeting for the last three weeks. I'm feeling it. I'm just telling you right now, I'm feeling it. Because I love being around them. They encourage me in my walk with Jesus Christ. I pray I do the same with them. I want to spend time with the people in this room. You know why? Because we're going to be spending eternity together. And people need to know what this community looks like. So when they say, man, why do you love these people so much? Because we love Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. See, God's called you and me to be a people of God. Just like he's calling the people of Israel. And our promises are made more sure because of Jesus. That is so cool. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of their promise and of ours. But man, we need to get around one another. Because our culture is doing not so good. Wouldn't you agree? I think I'd rather be around this group of people. And I'm not talking about a commune. Nobody's talking about, you know, let's build a wall and be a commune. But we got to start here because right now we're on the opposite end of that, of that pendulum swing, right? We can be on, on this end of a commune where we never get out, never do anything with anybody else. That's not where we are as a Christian culture right now. As a Christian culture, where we are is like we never spend time with the faithful. And God is wanting, saying that is so necessary for your equipping, for people to know that you love one another, that ultimately you love Jesus. This time is important. So let me tell you something. People, consider carefully the Sundays that you're missing. I know, we have vacations, we're out of town, I get that. But too many times, you know what we do? We prioritize worldly things over the things of God and say, you know what? I'm going to go to that game. But that game's not the body of Christ. You're not going to convince anybody you love Jesus by going to the football game. You're not. Have family in town. I got family in town, so I'm going to skip this week. How's I going to tell your family that you love Jesus because you're going to give up on the fellowship of believers so that you could be with your family away from the fellowship of believers? How's I going to tell them that you love Jesus? Yes, I'll, I'll say a prayer in front of them or I'll, I'll talk. I hope to have that opportunity. Come on. The best way to do it is say, I'm not missing church. You're welcome to come with me. I want you to see my family that I'm so proud of. I want you to know about the Jesus that I serve. If you don't want to come, that's fine, but I'm going to be there. Why do you need to be there? You can be there anytime. You don't understand. You don't understand. I love Jesus. 
And you're never going to convince them if you're the one always compromising on that conviction. This is how we become a people of God. This is what God wants to build up in you and me and as we're going to see in the people of Israel. Would you stand with me? Here's my prayer for you today. You change your mind about community in Christ. My prayer for you today is that you will love one another. Learn to love the people who are in this room. Get in fellowship with them and understand that there is no better witness. Not my word, Jesus' words. There is no better witness for your love of Christ than being around the people in this room and growing in relationship with one another that we might be trained up to reach the world, to make disciples of all nations for Christ. It starts here in this place with love for one another. My prayer for you today is that changes. And you know what? Here's a great thing. We get to have a picnic. Yeah. We get to practice this like right now. I didn't plan the picnic for this day. Somebody else did. But how cool, right? How cool. We get to do that. Let's be in fellowship together well today. Love one another well. I'm going to pray. If you have any needs, we're going to have our elders up front. We would love for you to to come up here with those needs and let us pray for you. And then join us out on the field afterwards so that we can have true fellowship together and learn to love one another that the world may know that we love Jesus. God, thank you so much for this day and this time that we have together. We pray in the name of Jesus that you will help us to love one another well, that As Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests, you have called us to be your people, to spread the name and the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. And so God, help us today by learning, first and foremost, to love one another in community well, to prioritize you, your people, your community, your values, the things that that will exalt the name of Christ so that we have a testimony for those around us saying, no, I'm not going to do that. You know why? Because i got to be around my people. Because we love Jesus. God, help us to love Jesus well by loving one another well. In Jesus' name, amen.